I'm going to pray for this morning. We're going to uh, jump into the Word this morning. So if you guys would like, you can open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. Um, I'm going to pray before we jump in uh, to transition into uh, listening to, hearing, and uh, ultimately uh, responding to God's Word. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And uh, let me pray, and then uh, we will jump in. We'll basically just be finishing up what we kind of started to some degree last week. Uh, we'll read uh, two passages that kind of summarize uh, what we'll be looking at subject matter-wise this morning, and uh, we'll hopefully be not only finishing up a train of thought throughout the book of Acts, but also kind of opening up a doorway to a brand new train of thought uh, throughout the remainder of the book as we kind of uh, turn the corner to almost come to the conclusion of this, this great book, and then once we're done here, we'll be obviously moving into something different after this, which uh, God hasn't yet totally, completely revealed yet, so we can be praying for uh, us as we kind of discern what that's going to look like. So let me pray real quick, and then we will jump in, looking at Acts chapter 19. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you guide, direct, that it's your purposes, it's your purpose, your desire, God, to, to lead us, to direct us, to send us. And God, we, we pray that we would be a community of people that are constantly listening to your voice. Um, Jesus, if you truly are Lord, uh, that we would surrender and devote our heart, our affections, God, to you to let you shape us in our lives for whatever purposes that you have for us. Um, help us to fully live with an awareness that you are king. And God, that our futures, our, our present, uh, even our past are completely in your hands. So uh, help shape us now, God, we pray, as we uh, give attention to your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Well said. Amen. Um, so I want to read um, Acts chapter 19. We'll just take a look at verse 21, or, uh, verse 21 and 22. And, uh, and then we'll jump in to looking at this morning's message, which uh, I titled uh, How the Spirit Leads. And uh, it's, just, it's going to be brief. It's going to be um, just kind of a, a simplistic way of trying to think about and consider the reality of, of how does God lead. Um, you know, again, what we just prayed for, what you guys just saw in some way was kind of an object lesson, like God leads. There are occasions where God directs and God guides, and, uh, and, and God's always looking for ways to uh, synchronize our hearts and our lives up with whatever it is that he's up to. And, and part of a problem is that we, we either don't listen, uh, we don't have hearts that are open to the Spirit, we're stubborn. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we, we can unpack this. Um, we go our own route, we claim to be the you know, controllers of our own lives, and whatever the case is, um, we oftentimes end up on a path of brokenness um, and or, or death. And yet the, the invitation of the gospel really is always an invitation uh, from Jesus to say, take my yoke upon you, allow me to be your shepherd, allow me to lead and guide and direct you. It's always an invitation to really allow God's uh, God's will, God's story to basically hijack ours. And in a sense, that's why we gather on our Sunday morning. Um, I mean, among other things, uh, one of the reasons why we gather as a larger community of God's people, it's to be restoried. It's to remind ourselves that, that our lives do not focus, rotate, center upon ourselves. Uh, we are part of something bigger. We're part of God's purposes. And the invitation of Jesus is always uh, never coercion, it's always invitation. It's always an invitation to say, trust me, allow me to, to lead, allow me to shepherd and guide you. So 
Uh, let me read the passage, and then uh, we will jump in to begin to take a look at this. So verse uh, 21 and 22, it's simple. It says this, now after these events, uh, it says that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and the Kai and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of the helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So what I wanted to think about with this is, this is, you know, for, for some of you might be like, well, waiting for the punchline, what's so great about this passage, or what's this talking about? Um, because this is God's word, um, I think it just gives us some clues that, that Paul is on, on a mission. Paul is uh, about doing what God calls him to do. And in this passage, what we see is that Paul, it says that Paul reasoned in the spirit. And then he makes his decision, his future plan to go do something, um, ultimately to make his way to Rome. And, and most scholars would recognize that this particular passage kind of marks the, the rounding off of the remainder of the book of Acts. Like, like Paul's mission is ultimately going to end up in Rome. There are occasions throughout the New Testament, at least one, where Paul says his, his real objective, his goal is to make it his way all the way to Spain. Paul never makes it to Spain that we're aware of. He ends up, in fact, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. Um, so Paul's desire is to go to Rome. There's all such a speculation of why Paul wants to go to Rome. Um, so I'm not going to speculate on that. But um, the, the fact is, is that Paul's desire, um, he makes his decision right here. And the question that I want to kind of wrestle with and think about just a little bit um, is, is how did Paul go through this process? Where in the world did Paul get the idea, Rome? Where in the world did Paul get the idea that Here's what I'm going to do. Committee, group of people. Uh, it, this, there's a lot of these details that are literally lacking in this passage. I mean, what we are left with, uh, for the most part, in the New Testament, if you're looking to the Bible as a way or a template of how to discern the future of your life, you're not necessarily going to get that. What you will get are a variety of ways that point us to ultimately one thing, which is a relationship, literally a relationship with God, a relationship of trust, of reacting to who God is and the relationship that God has sought to establish and create and forge uh, with us. No matter how broken or sinful or misdirected or misguided uh, our lives have ever been or are currently in a status of or in the future will veer off path into a form of drift. The fact always remains that God desires relationship, to guide, to shape, to direct, to lead us. Um, so that's what I want to look at here this morning. Is I want to just look at it a, a couple different ways, three different ways, in which we see that God actually uses and shapes and directs our steps. So in the passage that we have here is a little bit of uh, things, that, some things that we've got to think about because Paul just simply makes a statement. He says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. Now depending upon what Bible translation you have, you might have a variation of that. It might not read directly, word for word, what I just described. Um, just as a side note, whenever you're reading your Bible, and if you uh, read a different translation, or that's radically different maybe, or a different way of uh, describing something from another translation that you might, might be familiar with, um, it's, you know, some, some people might be led to believe, well, maybe it's because the translation's wrong. Um, really, typically what's at work or what's at play is you have language, because the Bible in this context was actually written in a foreign language, Greek. And what sometimes you have are words and phrases and ideas 
that are a little bit difficult to translate. And this happens to be one of those passages where it's a little bit difficult to know exactly what the writer Paul, or what Luke, I should say, is saying re with regard to Paul. So here's a couple ways in which some other translators or translations have been uh, put forth under this. So on one hand, uh, one translation says this, under the divine direction or in his own mind as it was determined by the Holy Ghost. So in that translation, it's that, it's just, it's, it's, so the question kind of boils down to, is this the Holy Spirit leading Paul? Or is this Paul's spirit, you know, his emotions, his mind, his will, another way to think about this, or is his spirit somehow being guided by God? And this is where it gets a little bit ambiguous. That's why there's a variety of translations on this particular point. So I think this is one attempt to try to synchronize uh, what might feel or seem like a little bit of a dichotomy here, though it's not necessarily a dichotomy. The idea that this guy is basically trying to say is that really under divine direction, under God's direction, um, that God is prompting or moving the, the spirit of, of Paul, that God's actually behind this. Paul is praying or listening to or paying attention to subtle cues as to how God might be leading him. So that's one way to think about this. Another uh, translation says it this way, that uh, this was placed in his mind and therefore Paul purpose. So the question is, how is this placed in his mind? Where did Paul get the idea or place in his spirit? Again, the assumption would be that it was the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit of God, God's empowering presence, was working together with the heart of Paul. So what that meant is that Paul was not just some um, uh, ambiguous relationship to God, that Paul was trusting, turning to, loving God. And in that context, God was depositing or dropping these ideas in Paul's heart, his soul, his spirit. And therefore, Paul was responding to these things. Uh, another way to think about this in this translation is that by the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul determined. So again, you get the idea here. So whether or not this is Paul's spirit making up decisions to go do something, or whether or not this was directly the Holy Spirit depositing things, or some bit of combination of both, um, the, this is where I, I would suggest probably the latter, that the Holy Spirit's leading Paul, but Paul's spirit is, uh, is, uh, plays a role in this. And this is where it boils down to, uh, is that we, to some degree, uh, there, there is a part that we play of saying yes to God, or saying no to God, or saying maybe, or somehow even listening to an alternate narrative, maybe a fear, saying, well, I don't want to do that because I'm afraid. Um, but what we see here with Paul is Paul's spirit is in agreement with the Holy Spirit, and therefore Paul is now getting ready to launch out an entirely different foreign uh, mission field that Paul has never been to before. This is, again, like I said, where it leads us to the very end of the book. So now what I want to do to kind of uh, summarize some things before we wrap this up, again, today is a little bit more of a truncated message, and we will actually end with a little video, so I want to allow for some space to just watch that to think about what the contents of it are. I want to look at three things that historically, traditionally, as we read our Bibles, as we understand a little bit about the Christian faith in terms of the, the question of how do we discern how do we understand the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives? In other words, how does God lead you and I? What does that look like? Um, how does that take place? And there's a, three ways that we'll look at this. Number one, uh, obviously, is scripture, that God speaks to us. God, uh, as is oftentimes stated, God will never ask us to do something that is contrary to scripture. God's not going to ask you to go out and do something that violates uh, directly his, his decrees. Um, so first of all, uh, scripture is sort of this means by which, this filter by which we look at every other element and aspect of our lives. Now, that being said, there's a lot of things that the scripture does not tell you 
It does not tell you the name of your spouse that you're supposed to marry. It, I don't think the word Google is in the Old Testament or Amazon appears or, God's, or, or you know, should you go on staff with crew or should you go meet, be a missionary per se. There's a lot of words, ideas, phrases, concepts that are just not in the Bible. So if you're like, God, show me a passage on to what uh, future career I should take, Amazon or Google, um, you're not going to find that answer per se in explicit terms in Scripture. Does that make sense? But what you will find are ideas and principles and concepts uh, that will shape you into the right type of person God wants you to be. So wherever it is you go, if you end up in some sort of big Fortune 500 company or you end up becoming a full-time father at home or a full-time stay-at-home mom or someone that works uh, for a bank or whatever type of other context is that God places you, uh, you will become this type of person that responds and reacts to and loves the heart, the mind, uh, and all that of, of God, because Scripture shapes us into those types of, of people. So Scripture number one is this main idea that God will never ask us to do something that is in direct violation or contrast to Scripture in that respect. Uh, the second uh, way in which God shapes us, I, I like this phrase, uh, is sage wisdom. It's like, it's like Yoda knowledge, all right, but, but in the context of Christianity. Sage wisdom, I, I like the phrase. Okay, next slide. Oh, is it working? We working? Good. Oh, here we go. Next. Next one. There we go. Come. There we go. Almost. Whoops. They're working on it. They got it. Sage wisdom is the, is the second one that I want to think about. It's because what we see throughout Scripture is God gives us people in our lives that have wisdom. These are people that have gone before. These are people that might have more years on us. Uh, more knowledge, more understanding, more relationship with the heart of God. Now, don't necessarily equate uh, sheer physical age with uh, wisdom. Uh, there's oftentimes people that have been maybe even Christians for a long time. I know a lot of them. They claim to have had a long-standing relationship with God for decades, and yet their actual wisdom level is very low. Uh, their ability to love, their ability to be shaped, their ability to forgive, their ability to actually uh, demonstrate attributes that somehow resemble the heart and the attitude and the mind of God are actually non-existent. So, so don't uh, necessarily assume that length or longevity or age of a human being uh, or how long ago they received Jesus as their Savior, whatever type of language or terminology that might, they might use, don't necessarily assume that that somehow equates to a sage uh, type of wisdom. So, for example, Proverbs 15, verse 31 says this, and he, who listens to a life, uh, and he who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home with or among the wise. He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. For the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So this is the, the Proverbs uh, in which Solomon uh, was believed to have been the author of these, uh, is giving, like, literally sage advice, sage wisdom to a younger generation, saying, look, if you want to uh, make some sort of headway in this life, if you want to on, be on the path to what we would describe, maybe in today's world, as the good life, a life that's good, a life that's rich, a life that's meaningful, a life that is full of purpose, not just squandered, not following the path of the many. Uh, the way Jesus would use that terminology, he would say there's a broad path. There's a lot of people on this broad path, and they are on a path to destruction and, 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 and uh, a place of uh, finality. And what Jesus is saying, but don't follow that path. Follow the path that leads to life. And that way is, is narrow because 
uh, what scripture also say, there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end, it's a path of destruction. So how do we know what types of decisions, how do we process, how do we determine what type of person you should marry, uh, what type of job you should get, whether or not you should go to school, whether or not you should just go into a full-time career. All these questions are really important to our lives. They're not secondary. They're important. But here's the important thing, is that it is also good. Because first and foremost, following Jesus is not a private thing. It's deeply personal, but it's not private, meaning you're not isolated. Part of our problem as Westerners is we tend to think of Christianity or relationship with God as a privatized type of a thing that I'm alone over by myself with God. I don't need other people. I don't need others' advice. And so what happens, um, and that also plays into, I think, cultural ideas, cultural norms that for the most part, I think it's safe to say that we as a Western culture, we actually worship and idealize Youth and youthfulness. Would you agree with that? And we actually in some way eschew uh, people that are old. We turn away from those that are old. We don't want to be old. We don't want to uh, uh, apprehend or accept or celebrate oldness. We see it as kind of a curse. But the reality is that's radically backwards to the time of Scripture. In fact, this is why, you know, in Proverbs, it has this one passage. I'm just going to paraphrase it. It says that the, uh, the gray-haired man is, is wise. And, you know, in our Western culture, we read that. We're like, oh, gray hair. I don't want to get gray hair. I mean, I, uh, the, the fact is, is with something we, we resist, we don't want. Because part of it is we're reading that in a culture that worships and idealizes youth and youthfulness. Um, and yet, the whole idea of Scripture is that uh, when God moves and works and transforms people's lives and people have this long obedience in the same direction, saying yes to God, faith and confidence and trust in God becomes like this muscle we, uh, we, we exercise and we grow in our ability to say yes to God. We grow in our ability to discern uh, cues and ideas and concepts and leadings and promptings of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, I would suggest to you, seek out sage advice. Find people that are in your life, and if they're not in your immediate life, do research. Figure out. Get involved in the communities. Find a community group here in, in our church. Form a community group of people in your church. Ask people that might be older than you in the faith. Say, you know, I, I've said this before, especially to men in the context of men. I'm like, find men that love Jesus, that are older in Christ than you, and ask them, would you be willing to spend some time with me to just invest in my life, to help me make wise decisions that are in alignment with God? I'll take you out to coffee. I'll buy you lunch. I'll, I will do this as a way of showing gratitude and thankfulness to you and allow others to speak into your life. Much of our, uh, our, our, our ideas that we form, we form them separate or independent from allowing others to speak into our life. And I would say this, that if there are older people in your life that have sage wisdom and they're giving you signs of warning like you shouldn't do that, I would caution you against going down that path. I would caution you from getting involved in that relationship. I would warn you to not take that job. And you have sort of this defiant spirit saying, what do they know? They're older. They have no clue. They have no idea even what Instagram is or how to take a selfie what type of sage advice or wisdom would they have to offer me? It's just a pure demonstration of the fact that maybe we, you, are on a path that will lead to brokenness. And so some of you may even be hearing this right now and be like, he's old, he has no idea what he's talking about. I know what's up for my life. So I get it. I get it. But just think through it. 
Scripture is filled with older people, not just simply older people, but people have had a long demonstrated history of saying yes to God, breathing wisdom and knowledge and uh, understanding into the lives of other people that, that need it. So again, Proverbs 12, verse 15, says, the way of the fool seems right to him, but the wise man listens to advice. So a question that we got to ask ourselves, and I always like to encourage people to think about it this way, uh, to reverse engineer your life. What type of a person do you want to become? What type of a person do you want to uh, be shaped into? Because, uh, again, the scripture basically boils it down to there are wise people and there are unwise people. Scripture defines them as, as, as foolish. And that just simply means those that are unwise, those that are doing what they think is right in their own eyes and despising, turn away from wisdom of other people. But again, throughout scripture, we see that the scripture points us back to others that have been down the path of life, that have learned a few lessons along the way to turn to that, to see that as valuable. Then the third thing and final one is this, is to listen to spirit-filled reasoning. Spirit-filled reasoning. We actually see a handful of passages throughout the New Testament of this type of responsiveness to God actually taking place. So for example, here's some of them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, Paul uses language like this. I thought it was necessary um, 1 Corinthians 16, 3 through 4, it says, I thought it was fitting. Uh, Acts 6, 22 through 4, it says this, uh, it was not desirable. And again, there are language that he uses in chapter 15. He says, it seemed good. This is all language that I would kind of put into the spirit-filled reasoning. It's the idea of just kind of, does this make sense? Or is this absolutely foolish or ridiculous or make no sense? So if you're someone that's like, I've never met this person. I've fallen in love with them. I met them a week ago. We're getting married next week. There's a very good likelihood that that's not a good idea. Now in your mind, you're like, I love them so much. And it's so amazing. I have such incredible feelings. And the fact is, as quickly as that infatuation, those feelings came on, those same feelings can change or turn off. Or that person that you have all these feelings for may fall out of love with you as quickly as they, quote, unquote, fell in love with you. And look, if you value your heart, if it's, just, if it's just this center of your life that brings guidance and connectedness with God, then you should treat your heart as something incredibly valuable because oftentimes what happens is we give our hearts away to the wrong people because we're not listening to sage advice. We're not paying heed to what Scripture has to say. And in some ways, we're not listening to spirit-filled reasoning. So our hearts get crushed because we devote ourselves to things that at some point are not in alignment with the heart and the mind and the will and the purposes of God. And the steps and the actions that we take oftentimes bring deep brokenness into those arenas of our lives. And what God is calling us to is to uh, listen to what Scripture has to say. Listen to sage wisdom and advice that God brings to us and ultimately uh, employ some level of spirit-filled wisdom. Now, in closing, I want to finish with this final thought. Next slide. Is just a quick little statement as I was thinking about this. That discerning how the Spirit leads really has little or nothing to do with mechanics or methods. Uh, and actually has more to do with, with love. Hopefully you guys see that word love. Yeah? Nice, big, bold. Um, and here's, here's part of the problem that we have with, I, I personally I think we have with Christianity. And perhaps even religion in general is it's actually easier to follow according to a rule book. It's actually easier to follow 10 steps to success in a spiritual life than it is to actually engage in a relationship that demands love, it demands a heart that's softened, 
and open and willing and vulnerable, it's easier. You understand that? It's easier to give ourselves over to rules, regulations, stipulations, concepts, ideologies than it is to actually give our hearts to someone that may let us down or may not give us the answer that we want or may give us advice or input that is totally counter to what my heart wants. But this is what the Christian life is all about. It's about God calling us to himself. It's about love. It's about allowing God to reshape the affections of our hearts. The fact is, you and I, first and foremost, are not thinking people. First and foremost, you and I are loving people. There's things that we love. Thoughtfulness, thinking is a part of that. But the first and foremost thing that drives us, guides us, is what we love. I would argue that what compels us to do things in this life is not necessarily what we know about something. It's how we feel about something. It's how we love, how we're wired about something. Because, look, we can read, we can watch the movie Forks Over Knives and next day go out and eat trash food. Or is it Knives Over Forks? Forks Over Knives? You know what I'm talking about? Right? Any, our Netflix documentary, how about that? We'll keep it very general, on eating good and healthy, Right? Uh, you can watch one of those uh, Netflix shows or watch a movie about minimalism or something like that. And in your mind, like, I'm going to get away, give away all this. But the next day you go out and you buy more stuff. You accumulate more trash. You do stuff with your life that really makes no sense with what you've just been wired to think. Because first and foremost, we are loving beings. And this is why God is always calling us to love him, to respond to him, to give our hearts over to him. And in that becomes sort of the pathway by which God leads us and guides us. You, you can't get around this. So if for you, some of you, you're trying to figure out how to make sense of the Christian life and the mechanics of it, I, I want to I pull that rug out from underneath your spiritual understanding. There is no mechanics. It's love. If, especially for some men, I think. This is hard for men because men, we're like, we want some sort of mechanism to pull or something or idea or thing to show up to and just simply do and yet what God actually calls us to is just pause and love. Respond to me. Give me your heart. Worship me. Give yourself entirely over to me. So I want to finish with a, a little video clip by uh, the Bible Project guys. It's on, on, the, on the word love. And then uh, we'll wrap this up. And we'll have the worship team come on up as soon as this is over. And we will respond to God. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. 
So Abraham had Ahava for his son Isaac. That's parental love. Jonathan showed Ahava for his friend David. That would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have Ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their king David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations. And so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection described with the one word, Ahava. Now, all of this is helpful for understanding God's Ahava in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you. He chose you because of his Ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not a duty. It's a genuine feeling and affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment, it is something God does. And so, in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's ahava by showing ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word ahava. So in response, uh, I'm going to have us turn our hearts to God. And we will sing. We'll remember what God has done for us. Uh, by his love that was put on display for us, uh, Jesus giving himself to us. Yeah, the worship team will come on up. We'll sing. Uh, by partaking of communion and remembering the, the bread that was broken, so as a community, as a family, and as we dip it in the cup as a way of reminding us of the fact that uh, Christ did this so that our sins could be washed and cleansed. So in response, why don't we all stand before God right now and to close... What I want to do is um, respond by what many ancients have described as a call to confession and then a call to response, which would be to sing and partake of communion. So as we quiet our hearts before God, we want to confess our sin before God.
in the quietness of your own heart to recognize that, God, there are areas in your life, things that we have not done the way that we should have done, people that we have not loved the way we have ought to have loved, things that we should have done, but we knew uh, we didn't, um, things that we knew we shouldn't do, but we did, and to confess that before God uh, with the hope, the knowledge, the understanding that God will cleanse us and wash us. So why don't we just take a moment of quietness and to confess uh, our sin before God, to invite the Holy Spirit's presence, and then I'll pray over us, and then we'll respond to God by way of singing and communion. If you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, you just need even just the touch of God's presence or spirit upon your life, your heart feels dry, your uh, there's scenarios that you are going through in your life. You just need to have someone come alongside you. Uh, there'll be some leaders that will be up front that would love to pray with you. I'll be up front as well. I'd just love to pray with you as well. So let me pray right now over us. Take a moment of silence, and then we'll respond in song, communion, worship, and prayer. God, we confess to you our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, our love of the wrong things, and our failure to love those right things. God, wash us, renew us, restore us, God, into your purposes as a community of people that have been washed and renewed by the Spirit of the Holy God and by the waters of baptism. God, that we belong to you. So renew us to become your people that are your lights in this world, loving our neighbor, even our enemy. God, thank you for you cleansing and washing us. So as we sing, receive right now from God the forgiveness of your sin that comes through the blood of Jesus, your Savior. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we would love, love, to pray with you, to trust, to receive, to give your heart, your life to Christ. Again, there'll be people up front would love to pray with you. Anybody else has things that are going on in your life, we'd love to pray with you. Let's respond in song.